Hello there. Um, welcome to Harvest. Um, if you're new today, I want to um, yeah, just really say thanks for coming. I know you probably had uh, different places you could have been, different places you could have been worshiping at today, um, but you've come here, and so we're glad that you have, and um, our prayers that you'd really uh, meet with the Lord and have an encounter with Him as we go through our time today. I don't know if you guys watch, uh, it's an ABC News uh, special Kind of a series that comes on, um, not sure how regularly, but it's hosted by a man named John Quinones, and it's called What Would You Do? Anyone watch this show, What Would You Do? Okay, some of y'all. Basically, they, they put a hidden camera in different public places, and they create these moral dilemmas. They create these ethical scenarios where you're, you, you, you've got an option of either doing what most people would think is right versus doing what most people would, probably what most people would do and ignore the need there. Things like, what would you do if you're at a bar and there's a group of pilots who are drinking and are pretty heavily intoxicated and they're going to fly a plane? Now, what would you do in that situation? Would you step in and say something about it or would you just let them continue on their way? Another situation where um, there's a, a clerk at a store, at a convenience store, and he's got Down syndrome. And these customers are coming up to this clerk and they're making fun of him, calling him retarded calling him slow, and all these other things. And the question is, in that moment, as you're standing in that store, what would you do? Would you help them out? Or would you just let them continue on their way? A bunch of these moral and ethical dilemmas that this show presents. Let's bring it closer to home. What would you do in this situation? Well, maybe not closer to home, a little bit further from home, but reality. In Australia, outside of Sydney Harbor, there's a rocky, cliffy rock area. Uh, it's called the Gap. And the Gap is the place of choice for people to go and try and commit suicide. Hundreds upon hundreds of people have jumped to their death at this rocky cliff called the Gap. There's this one man who lives there. He's been living there for about 50 years. And for 50 years, he lives right across from this Gap, the place called the Gap. And he would look out his window with binoculars. And anytime he would see someone trying to take their life, he would run out there, and with care and compassion, he would seek to rescue their lives, whether it would be offering them conversation, offering them coffee or tea inside of his home. And 160 people in the past 50 years have had their lives spared because of his life. On more than one occasion, he's had someone try to pull him off that cliff to try and kill him along with themselves as well. But as they ran this story... In this Australian newspaper, some people would call him an angel, others called him a hero, and they asked him why you do it, and he said, it's really simple. It's not that simple. If someone is dying, then we'd be fools not to do anything to help them. He said, really, it's that simple. That's the same message that Jesus Christ gives in the passage we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35 to chapter 10, verse 1. This is a passage that we re revisit frequently here at Harvest as a way of reminding us who we are and what our call is in this life and what our call is in this world. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to chapter 10, verse 1. This is God's word. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, 
The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. This is God's word. As we uh, look into this text, there are three things that beckon us from this text that call us to get up from where we are and to move into our world. And three things that are very clearly seen. The first thing that we see is dying people beckon us from where we are to where they are. Verse 36, Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd were, uh, didn't stand a chance. You know this back in the ancient days, countless times throughout scripture, we, the people of God, are called sheep, especially before we come to know Christ, we're called sheep, because sheep are completely and utterly helpless without the aid of a shepherd, whether it's in finding still waters to drink from, whether it's in finding grass enough to eat from, whether it's to prevent themselves from getting lost because sheep are very nearsighted, short-sighted, stupid animals. Sheep, for that reason, need a shepherd. And without a shepherd, uh, sheep don't stand a chance. Whether it's danger from being caught in a thicket, danger from falling off a cliff, danger from, uh, from predatory animals, wolves and such, sheep without a shepherd are completely gone, completely lost. And when Jesus looked out at the crowds, that's what he saw. He saw sheep without a shepherd. He saw people who are harassed and helpless, who without Jesus Christ did not stand a chance. And the question is, what do you look at when you see the crowds of people? What do you look at when you see people? When you see people at school. Okay, so we've just begun a new school year for most of you who are in, in high school, college, middle school. When you look at people, what is it that you see? When you go to your workplace, when you go to the malls, Altamont Mall, when you go to Prime Outlet, when you go to Millennial, what do you see when you look at people? You see, for Jesus, this wasn't a theoretical, it wasn't just, I love people. Some of you say, I love people, I'm people person. But for Jesus, it wasn't just he loved people out there, but he loved the person next to him. Some of us are really good at loving the idea of loving people. But when it comes to flesh and blood and bone and issues and problems and late night calls, we're not good at loving them anymore. We're good at loving the youth ministry, but when it comes to really loving individual youth, we stop and pull a little bit short. Some of us are really good at the idea of loving people, but when it really comes down to the nuts and bolts of loving people, we don't really, we don't really love the way that Jesus calls us to love. And a lot of it is because we don't see people the way that Jesus does. And unless we see people the way that Jesus does, we will not have compassion for them. See, Jesus sees people a lot differently than we do. Back in the days that Jesus was living, there was a, a blue-collar worker. He was stupid. He was dumb. Everyone else made fun of him. He was brash. He was obnoxious. He spoke, talked too much. He made these great boasts about himself. He was self-righteous. He thought he was better than everyone else. And other people looked at him, and they said, man, that guy is such a goofball. I don't want to be friends with him. But Jesus looked at him, and he saw Peter, and he saw someone who's harassed and helpless. He saw someone who was a sheep in need of a shepherd. And so Jesus brought him in, and he raised him up to become a great leader 
a great among the disciples. There was another woman. She was a foreigner. She was the one that everyone made fun of. Everyone talked badly about her. She was from a despised race. She was the one who went from guy to guy to guy to guy. And everyone, she was the one that people would talk about. They're the ones that no one wanted to be around because they just despised her. She was disgusting. She could never be happy with one guy, so she needed another one, another one, and another one. And Jesus looked at her and saw in her what no one else saw. He saw a thirsty Samaritan woman, and he loved her, and he gave what no man, no woman could ever give to her. He gave her true living water that would satisfy the deepest longings of her heart. See, Jesus looked and saw things that were different from what anybody else saw. He sees differently than what you and I see. And we look at people and we say, man, what's wrong with that guy? We look at people and we say, that guy, he's so cool. He comes and he boasts about his weekend exploits, talk about all the things that he did, all the alcohol that he drank, and we're like, wow, I want to be like him. We look at them and we say, wow, what's wrong with that guy? But Jesus looks at people like that and he sees them as harassed and helpless. He sees shepherdless sheep when he looks at them. And we look at people, this handicapped guy, and all he's, he's unhygienic, he smells bad. He can't control his own bodily functions, so he smells. He stinks. Everyone wants to shun him and avoid him. They kind of push him off to the corner. Whenever he gets too close, they just push him back down. Anytime someone comes, he yells at them and calls out for them asking for money, and they look at him with despising eyes, but Jesus looked at this blind man, and he had mercy on him. He had pity on him. He had compassion on him, and he healed him. And he made him into a missionary that would go and tell other people about the healing power of Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus looks at people, he sees them as so different than the way we do. We look at people who sit in our worship service and they talk with their friends or they get on their their iPhones and they, they, they do internet stuff. And we look at them and we despise them. We say, how could they do things like that? But Jesus looks at them and he says, they're sheep without a shepherd, don't you see? And Jesus has compassion on them as harassed and helpless. Jesus looked at a man that everyone else despised. He was a bully on the block. He was shorter than everybody else, but he was always stealing their money. He was chief amongst the tax collectors and cheated other people. Maybe he was a bully at school who was taking other kids' money. But deep inside, Jesus looked at him, and he saw a man who was desperately longing for meaning and significance, longing for someone to look at his life and say, you're worth something. And as Jesus looked at Zacchaeus in the tree and said, I need to come and eat at your house, his life was forever changed because Jesus saw something different in him. See, what is it that we see when we look out in our world? See, what we see is so often so different than what Jesus sees. You know, this week I've been just kind of thinking about this song that in my earliest days in youth ministry I used to sing when I was in 6th, 7th grade, 7th, 8th grade. It says, I will love you, I will serve you because I love you. You have given life to me. I was nothing until you found me. You have given life to me. And the chorus says, heartache, broken pieces, ruined lives are why you died on Calvary. Your touch is what I long for. You have given life to me. That's why Jesus came. Those people that we look at, that we despise, Jesus says, that's why I came. It's those people that we look at and we say, what's wrong with them? Can't they ever get it right? Can't they ever get it together? And Jesus says, that's why I came. You see, harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd, Jesus is saying, people need God. 
the simple message of dying people. The second thing that beckons us, not only is there dying people, but there's a dire predicament, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Say he sees sheep without a shepherd to show that people need the Lord, but then he sees a harvest lacking workers to show that the Lord needs people. And so many believers are content to be spectators watching and letting other people do all the work while people continue to perpetuate this cycle of death. And he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers there, they are few for whatever reason, for whatever reason. Past week, I was uh, in Seattle at a, um, at a retreat doing ministry out there amongst a, um, a youth ministry there. And at the end of the retreat, I had a little bit of time to spend with uh, my wife, Olivia, and baby Manny, and then Olivia's parents are out there, um, my in-laws, as well as Olivia's sister-in-law, uh, Virginia, and her niece, Tabitha. So for a few hours one day, actually for about an hour one day, we went out to this blueberry field, and we went picking blueberries. It was, uh, you know, for some people, it would be a, a whole lot of fun. For me, it was just okay. It was uh, grandma, grandpa. Virginia, Olivia, two little girls, one nanny, 10 and a half months old, and Tabitha, almost two years old, and, and me. And so we went out. Um, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't feeling too hot that day, and so I wasn't really all that excited to go, but they uh, threw me in the car and said, we're going to pick blueberries. And I said, oh, joy. And so we went out picking blueberries. And we got to the blueberry field and opened up to this huge field, and they gave each of us buckets. We had these buckets, just like paint buckets with a handle over it, and um, they said, go, 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 just go and pick your blueberries, and it's cool, it's like $1.80 a pound, but while you're out there, you could eat as many blueberries as you want to kind of sample them, so we're walking, and uh, the lady at the counter said, uh, go to the very back, that's where the best blueberries are, and so we went around the corner, and this huge, as far as the eye could see, huge, huge field, hundreds upon hundreds of yards filled with blueberry trees, bushes, and row after row after row after row after row. And I was like, man, this is a whole lot of blueberries here. And as, as, as Olivia and Manny and I were walking uh, back towards the uh, back of the field, grandma and grandpa took off, and Virginia and Tabitha were a little bit ahead of us. We saw this elderly man. He had both arms filled with this huge box of huge, blue, biggest blueberries I'd ever seen in my life. They looked like they were genetically engineered, but they were huge, just dripping with, uh, with juice and flavor and sweetness and, and the joy on his face. And he muttered something kind of indiscriminately as he walked by. I said, those are some huge blueberries. And he just started saying something and with this huge smile, and I didn't understand what, I sa- what he said. And I said, yeah, and, and we just kind of walked <laughs> on by. But we were picking these, uh, went to, to pick these blueberries and as we uh, kind of rounded a corner and, and just started making our foray into the blueberry patches, uh, Olivia's dad had two uh, pails filled, and he was, they were loving life because it reminded them of the countryside in Korea, and this was kind of, that's their natural habitat. So they were loving it. Um, you know, I was like, this is pretty cool. As I was eating the blueberries, I was like, these are really good, and um, Manny was just kind of sitting there staring, and I said, Olive, I'll hold Manny. You go pick blueberries, and she's like, no, you do it. Uh, I think you're, you'd be better at it, and so... 
I started picking blueberries, but it was very difficult work because the best ones are apparently towards the bottom of the tree. That's where I saw the biggest ones. They had some little dinky, uh, like little berry-looking ones up at the top, but at the bottom were like the, the big kahunas. And so we were like, man, this is exciting. And so I was picking these blueberries, but it was hard because I had to, you know, I had to bend my knees a little bit and picking these, these, these berries off. And I, I came back with a with my bucket, and I said, Olive, I think I'm done. And she looked at my bucket, and I, I only had about 30 blueberries. And she's like, no, you got you get to back, get back out there. You don't pick, you don't eat. And so I was like, <laughs> okay. I was like, why don't we trade? I'll hold Manny, and you go. She's like, no, no, no. And so Manny the whole time is just sitting there watching and staring, and, and Tabitha's running around, and she's picking her blueberries. And I looked at her. I just I wanted to make sure I had more than her. And she had about 15 in her bucket, so I was picking a little bit more. And there was a whole bunch of blueberries that had fallen to the, to the ground, and I mean, I'm telling you, tons and tons of trees. And by the time we, uh, we, finished the, we finished picking blueberries, after about maybe 30 to 45 minutes, Olivia's dad had two buckets filled. Olivia's mom had one huge bucket filled. Virginia had about half a bucket. Um, I had about uh, a fifth of a bucket, and uh, Tabitha had about 15 berries, and Manny and Olivia were just kind of sitting there watching things going on, and and I remember saying, gosh, we're going to go home and we're going to eat these berries and we're going to wish that we had more. We wish that we had more time. We wish that we had... And, and, and the tragedy was that so many berries had fallen to the ground and we're just, you couldn't eat them anymore because they had gotten dirt over them. And the, the one thing that I kept saying to myself is there's just so many of them. There's so many of them. If only we had more hands. If only we had more people to help us. You know, it can be one thing when we're talking about blueberries, but it's another thing when we're talking about human life. Another thing when we're talking about human life where we look at the fields and we see there's just so many of them, and some people are filled with two arms, two buckets filled with the work that they've been doing, but other people are just kind of standing off on the sides watching, never being able to taste and experience the joy of bringing in a harvest. There's so many people that the, uh, the, the harvest is plentiful, it says, and, and the workers are few. Wherever it is that we go, wherever it is that we go, I, I remember hearing about one of my, my professors going to Africa to teach leaders out there. As he was teaching and training up these church leaders, as he was leaving, one of them grabbed his arm and he pleaded with him and he said, please, please, Dr. Pratt, send more missionaries. We need more workers. And as Richard Pratt was, <laughs> was telling the story, he said, I could not promise him that we could send more people because no one wants to go. Because no one wants to go. But we go to Ecuador and we see in 88 churches that are in the denomination that we work with and only 20 of them have pastors and 68 churches just like ours who have no one to teach the word of God with them. And this resounding resounding refrain that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And the missionary tells a story of how he went to China, and this elderly man was converted through the gospel efforts of the missionary. And this man with, with tears in his eyes said, thank you so much for bringing the gospel to me. And he asked these, these American missionaries, he said, did your parents, were your parents also believers in Jesus Christ? And these missionaries said, well, yes, they, they were. And this man began to sob and he began to weep and he said, but why then did they not come as missionaries to tell and share the gospel with my parents because now it's too late for them. All around the world, the chorus is the same. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
because so many times we're content to just sit back and let other people do the work. And so many times we're content to be filled with our spiritual blessings while other people are deprived of theirs because we're content to be where we are. And Jesus says there is a dire predicament. There is a looming crisis on the horizon. I mentioned this last week, but this is, this is for my children. This is for my child. That even here in America, I worry that my man, he's going to grow up without a pastor to lead her and to teach her the ways of God like we all have. I worry about people like Evelyn. I worry about people like, like Chloe and Zoe and Phoebe. I worry about people like, uh, like Ella. Who's going to lead them? Who's going to teach them? Because the harvest is so plentiful, but the workers are few because we're not responding to the call of God to go forth. And Keith Green said, this generation of believers is responsible for this generation of souls. It's not good enough for us to point a finger at them and say, what's wrong with those people out there? It's about us saying, it's on us. It's, oh, the onus is on us to do something about it. We're responsible for our generation of souls. And so Jesus says, will you hear the call of God to go? Will you hear the call of God to go into your schools wherever you may go, wherever you may be? I haven't put you where you are simply so that you can learn and get, gain social standing, but so that you might go and you might be a light into the darkness, so that you might be a worker in the harvest field at Lake Brantley, Lake Mary, Cypress Creek, Dr. Phyllis, wherever you're called to be. I've called you to go to your schools for a reason. I've called you to be at UCF. I've called you to be at Valencia. I've called you to be in the places you are. I've called you to be working exactly in the places where you are because those people need workers, and where you go is the harvest field. First Baptist Church of Orlando, as soon as you leave the exits of the church, as soon as you leave the premises, there's a sign that says you are now entering the harvest field. You're now entering the mission field because these people beckon and call us to go forth. It's dying people. It's a dire predicament, so what do we do? Here's what Jesus says. A dangerous prayer, verse 38. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So many places Jesus tells us that we should pray. In other places, Jesus tells us how to pray. In other places, he gives us the manner with which to pray and the posture of prayer, but very rarely does he tell us specifically what we should pray. But here is one very clear example where Jesus says, this is what you ought to pray. Knowing that people are dying, know that the predicament is dire, this is what you should pray. Lord of the harvest, send forth workers into the harvest field. But so rarely do we hear this prayer actually on the lips and the hearts of his people for whatever reason. Maybe it's because we don't know. Maybe it's because we don't show. Maybe it's because we don't want to go. Whatever reason might be because this is one of the most dangerous prayers that you could pray. Because as they prayed that prayer, chapter 10, verse 1, says these very people who prayed this prayer, he called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. They're the ones who prayed this prayer. They're the ones whom Jesus would send out, send out, and 10 of these 12 would die martyrs' deaths, at least. You see, this is the most dangerous prayer that you could pray because Jesus could very well be calling you to be the answer to your own prayer and to say, God, glorify yourself and build your kingdom at my expense. In 
1806, Samuel Mills, this great missionary pioneer, student volunteer movement, one of the, the forerunners, the pioneers of that movement, gathered at Williams College as an awkward, gangly freshman, is what they said about him. That was his description. But he had a longing and a heart to see the evangelization of God, uh, evangelization of the world in his generation. And so he began to pray, Lord of the harvest, send forth workers into the harvest field. And he gathered other students along with him, and they gathered together for prayer. This one day they were praying out in the fields as they were claiming territory for the kingdom of God. And it began to rain, and this thunderstorm began to, these clouds began to form. And so they decided to run and to take their prayer meeting indoors. But before they got there, the rain started coming. So they took shelter under a haystack. And they began to pray, and they began to pray, and they began to pray. And they called this the haystack prayer meeting. And out of this prayer meeting, all of his buddies were sent forth into the mission field. And as a result of those prayers, as they prayed, send forth workers into the harvest field. A third of the student body of their campus, a third of the student body went forth into the mission field taking the gospel to the ends of their known world at the time. Praying this dangerous prayer is dangerous because it shakes the gates of hell from its very foundations, but it's dangerous because God may call you and me to be the answer to our own prayers, to go to places that we don't want to go, to go to places that might be dangerous, but to know, but to know that there are people out there who need the Lord God. Would you be willing to pray this prayer for the sake of the lost? Would you be willing to go for the sake of those who don't know him? Because it's been in every generation people who prayed this prayer and went forth to places where they did not want to go, through whom the gospel was sent forth, through whom the gospel came to people like you and me, as they began to pray these prayers. And God is saying, would you be willing to pray this in your own life and then be willing to be used of God to be the answer to your own prayer? You may know that it's hard work. You may know that it's dangerous. But like that man in Seattle holding this armloads filled with a joyful fruit, those, Psalm 126, who go forth sowing in tears of joy will surely come back reaping with songs of joy. That's the promise of God. There is no joy. There is no joy in our reaping unless there's sorrow and tears in our sowing. It's always like that. It's always like that in every area of the Christian life. That without the effort, there's no rejoicing on the other side of it. The story is told often of a group of people off Nantucket Island, the coast of Boston, near Boston, Massachusetts. There's this island, and they were known to being prone to having these great big storms that rose up on the seas. And many times little ships would be lost at sea. And many times people would drown and people would die. And there's a group of people who lived on that island who could not bear to see that within a mile of their shores, people night in, night out, day in, day out, dying because there was no one to rescue them. And so they formed a group of people together. They called themselves a humane society. They built little huts on the island, on the shore, and they would keep watch on the sea. And whenever a ship would go down, the alarm would sound, and they would get into their boats, they would get into their rafts, and they would go forth, risking their lives. They even came up with a motto. They said, we don't have to come back, but we've got to go out. We don't have to come back, but we've got to go out. 
And every time a ship would go down, they would say that to one another. Say, we don't have to come back, but we've got to go out. It was unthinkable to them that lives could be lost at sea while it was on their watch. They didn't do it because of money. They didn't do it because of fame. They didn't do it because of the publicity they got it. They did it, they did it simply because they loved and cherished human life. That's all that mattered to them. And so they went out, and they would go forth. In time, this job became so dangerous that the Coast Guard began taking over. The Coast Guard said, we'll do the work. And for a while, the Humane Society and the Coast Guard together started doing the work. These people on this Humane Society said, no, we can't leave. Just We can't leave it to the pros. We've got to get involved. We've still got to do what we were called to do. And they continued to remember that line. We don't have to come back, but we've got to go out. We've got to go out. And out they went, and out they went, and out they went. But as time went on, they began to realize that the Coast Guard does it a little bit more effectively. They do it a little bit better. They do it a little bit faster. And so they said, we don't need to go out. Let, let's not go out anymore. Maybe if we want to go out, then we should join the Coast Guard. But us here, let's just, let's just kind of be our own thing. We don't, need to, we don't need to go out and do the things that we used to do anymore because there are other people to do it. They're the ones risking their lives. And yet as time went on, 300 years past, they couldn't get themselves to, to disband their group. They just enjoyed being together all the time. They loved getting together. And so every year around November, they hold a banquet and they honor one another. They talk with one another. They sing songs and they dance together. They huddle together. They gather and they talk about their ancestry and the way things used to be. They just don't go out anymore. They don't go out anymore. They've forgotten and lost the meaning of the words. We don't have to come back, but we've got to go out. You know, this can happen to organizations all the time. In fact, it does happen all the time. It can happen to individuals. It can happen to you and me. It can happen to you and me as people who call ourselves harvest. It's easy for us to forget why we're called what we're called. It's easy to forget who we're called to go to and why we're called to come together. We gather only so that we might scatter. And then we scatter only so that others might be gathered together with us as well. It's easy for us to forget but I exhort and encourage and pray that you and I together would remember the example of our Savior, Jesus, who saw what he saw and then was willing to not be a spectator, but got up out of his seat and, in fact, exchanged places with the shepherd, with, with the shepherd with the sheep. That on the cross, the good shepherd hung and he died. And on the cross, he was the one who became harassed. He was the one who became helpless. He was a sacrificial lamb who hung on the cross. He was the one, a sheep without a shepherd, as even his father, with whom he knew nothing but intimate love, abandoned him on the cross. He was the one who was willing to step out of his comfort zone because he saw a people and had compassion on them. And for their brokenness and for their shame and for their sin and their broken pieces and their ruined lives, he died on Calvary for your sins and for mine. And he says, those who see Oh, all who pass by, would you see, would you see that I did this not only for you, but I did this for the sake of the lost, those shepherdless sheep, the workerless harvest. Would you see that? Would you hear their cries? Would you see the need? Would you go forth because our world beckons us to go?
to come, I want to encourage us to really reflect upon these things that beckon us to move from being watchers to being those who get out into our world. Our Lord God calls us and shows us a picture of dying, shows us a picture of dying people. What is it that you see? If you don't see that, we ask the Lord, God, open the eyes of my heart that I might see what you see in your people. Open the eyes of my heart that I might see what you see in people at work, people at school, people in our world. Open my eyes that I might see. Maybe the Lord God long ago has been calling you, has been calling you to get out from under the shadows and get into the harvest field where there's work to be done. They saying, stop sitting there watching. Don't be a spectator anymore. There's a harvest to be reaped. Would you go forth? Would you get out there? Would you go? Don't just sit there while people die. It's really not that difficult. It's simple. We must go. Maybe others of us, we want to dare pray this prayer that could radically revolutionize your life and the world that we live in. It says, Lord of the harvest, send forth workers into the harvest field. Even if it means I don't come back, I need to go. Maybe some of us are at that place where God's calling us to that. However, you need to respond to the word of God this morning. Let's come to the Lord. And let's let the full weight of a shepherdless sheep and a workerless harvest sink into our hearts. Let's let the full weight of what Christ has done on the cross for them, not only for you and me, but for them, sink into our hearts. And then would we respond? Then would we say, God, here's my life, all of me and nothing less given to you for the sake of the lost. Let's take a moment to come to the Lord in prayer and respond to his word. Father in heaven, it's no other option in our lives. Either we are a mission field or we are a missionary. If we consider ourselves to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, either we go or we are disobedient. Jesus, you commanded us to go. And as Keith Green said, it should be exception, should be the exception that we stay. Because the command is clear as day. The harvest indeed, the harvest truly is plentiful. 
the workers are few. Great and mighty God, would you help us to respond the way that you would want us to respond? It's so easy for us to take a message like this and say, that's good, and then to do nothing about it. But God, I pray that this message would haunt us in a good way, would chase after us, would run us down with visions of the dying around us, with visions of shepherdless sheep, with visions of people who desperately need to know the Lord God. Help us in our prayers this week. If you bring someone to mind, that we would pray and intercede on their behalf. If you're constantly bringing someone into our path, that we would take it as a sign that maybe you're opening up a door for us to engage them with the gospel. But keep us, of all places, from just sitting where we are. Help us to go. Because the Savior calls, a world beckons, and all of heaven's doors are open wide for the harvest that is to come. So use us for your glory. Use us for the sake of the lost. We thank you, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.